Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. For more podcasts that are independent, educational, and just pretty darn brilliant like myself, make sure you check out the Agora Podcast Network. It has its own podcast feed. There's also several other podcasts that are joined together with When Diplomacy Fails. Some of them are even my friends, 10 American Presidents, a History of England, American Biography, a History of Westeros, and so many more are all waiting for you to check us out. So make sure you do agorapodcastsnetwork.com or simply search for us in Google, iTunes, or anywhere else. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode.
Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our 30 Years War mini-series looking at 17th Century Warfare, Episode 3. It is in this episode that the military revolution becomes our major focus. Now that we know what came before, we can look at what supposedly came after, and whether Michael Roberts, the historian who coined the term in the 1950s, was justified in bringing it forward at all. Does it hold some truths about how European warfare developed, or was it full of holes and an awkward, forced fit for something as fluid and dynamic as a history of warfare? In this episode we're going to find out, and don't worry, if alarm bells are ringing right now and you're thinking, military revolution, that sounds really boring, I promise it's going to be interesting for you if you're at all gripped by histories of warfare. We're not going to bore you to death with theories, but we are going to tell you what's what in 17th century warfare, so without any further ado, let's get into it. This episode of the 30 Years War is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. If you would like to access ad-free episodes, read the scripts, find out the references, support this podcast and help make history thrive, then the best way to go and do that is to head to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Not only will you be able to get ad-free episodes and read what I'm reading right now, you'll also be able to get extra content. For $1 a month, you'll be able to get ad-free episodes of the 30 Years War. For $2, ad-free episodes of whatever series in When Diplomacy Fails is being released on a Monday. Be that the Korean War, the Versailles Anniversary Project, or Poland is Not Yet Lost, when those series are eventually released. For $5 a month, though, you'll access the extra feed and get access to an hour of extra content every single month, which is a pretty big deal because you'll be able to listen to series such as the Jan Sobieski biography series, 1956, and eventually, The Age of Bismarck. So if you would like to invest your monies in history, and listen to more history on top of that, and make me a very happy history friend indeed, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Otherwise guys, thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode. While it may seem like just another theory on paper, the military revolution is actually immensely handy for us because it gives us a great guidebook through which we can follow the important developments in Western warfare. We have talked a little bit about the military revolution, but before we go any further in this mini-series, it's important to explain what we mean. Again, I would like to emphasise, please don't be put off by the appearance of a theory so early on in this series We're not about to bombard you with technical terms or jargon, but considering the importance of the theory, it'd be like doing a history of electricity and not talking about the light bulb if we left the military revolution out. That's a very awkward metaphor, of course, but hopefully you get what I mean. Let's give ourselves a brief grounding in what exactly the military revolution is then, and more importantly, why it matters for us. Michael Roberts was the historian officially responsible for the military revolution idea in 1956, and over the following years another historian of great esteem in Geoffrey Parker sought to sharpen the theory. As Parker tends to do, his works examining the viability of the military revolution and breaking down its different layers make it much easier for people like myself to understand it. In an article assessing whether or not the military revolution is a myth, for instance, and a document which sets us in very good stead for this episode, 
Parker sets to his task of examining how accurate the military revolution idea is by listing the major developments on the battlefield which led to so many other progressions. Parker writes, First and foremost came a revolution in tactics. Certain tactical innovations, although apparently minor, were the efficient cause of changes which were really revolutionary. The principal innovation in the infantry was the eclipse of the prevailing technique of herding enormous squares of pikemen at each other in favour of linear formations composed of smaller uniform units firing salvos at each other. Likewise, the cavalry, instead of trotting up to the enemy, firing and trotting back again, the caracal, was required to charge, sabres in hand, ready for the kill. Okay, that's grand and all, you may be thinking, but surely this is just the natural result of innovation in warfare. Did it really have that much of an impact? Well, yes it did, and for the key reason that tactics like these required something on a scale which had never been known before. Training. Lots and lots of training. If men were taught to stand and fire into one another without breaking under the terrible strain, and if cavalry were instructed on the best ways to charge into their enemy, then they would all have to be trained. Not just training, but the drill in each of these arms of the army would have to be updated and perfected. Now, we're about to hear a little bit of a plug here, because if you've listened to our series on Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, which is available to $2 patrons, then you'll remember we talked about the importance of the military drill. It was vital that, rather than think, oh dear god, I'm probably going to die, men were so thoroughly in the zone, so to speak, when it came to the drill, that they moved and responded according to a prearranged set of orders. This took the thinking out of war for the average soldier, and it meant that they only had to follow the orders of the man that was commanding them, and barking the commands, which they knew inside out from months of solid training. A knock-on effect that the importance of the drill had was that it took a good deal of the personal skill and bravery out of the contest of war. You and your friends beside you were all doing the same thing. You were walking forward, discharging your musket, and walking back to the line. Similarly, in cavalry, while undoubtedly more dashing, you and your saddled friends operated according to a strict code that stated when to charge, who to charge at, what to avoid, and when to regroup. On regular occasions, the two arms of the army, infantry and cavalry, marched together as one and trained as one unit so that all men assembled could appreciate the importance of working in tandem and so that they could see what they could achieve when they were all on the same page as only the drill enabled them to be. If you think back to the first episode on 17th century warfare, where we looked at the feudal system in our English case study, then this change will seem quite extraordinary. Soldiers were of course trained in the late Middle Ages, but nowhere on the scale reached by the late 16th century or beyond. In the English case, armies were instead comprised of some highly skilled, highly armoured knights, highly trained archers, and then the melee infantry, such as billmen or spearmen or swordsmen. The end result was not a rabble, since everyone knew their role, but it was far from coherent, and it could often break down, leaving one element of the system vulnerable. The reason for these breakdowns would be the lack of opportunities to train together, because these men were not soldiers by trade, they were peasants, or small landowners, or noble knights in English society. The importance of their weapons on the battlefield reflected their status in society, and this was largely because soldiers in the late Middle Ages 
were expected to kit themselves out, as neither the king nor his nobles individually had the power to pay for a whole army with all of its constituent parts, not to mention the food for the horses, gunpowder for the cannons, and rations for the men. In that episode, we also saw how the knights in England became less important on the battlefield because they shed their armour for a post in the king's growing administration or to enrich themselves in burgeoning trades or enterprises. As the knights were extricating themselves from military service, they were also leaving behind one of the qualities which made them a warrior caste. They were replaced by men hired on military contracts, on terms quite unlike the feudal contract of obligation which had previously characterised the wars fought by Englishmen. The reason for better contracts was that the feudal system simply did not allow English kings to wrest the necessary commitment from their men which they required. More than that, even while the king was head of the feudal system, he could not compel any of his nobles to commit themselves and their men by a threat of force. He needed something more reliable if wars were to be fought properly. We also said last time that it was important to not make too many sweeping generalisations about warfare. Knights were less common as they had sought employment and distinction elsewhere, but they were still an impressive sight on the battlefield and the king would pay top dollar for mercenary knights if he couldn't get the required contingent of armour on the battlefield. If it helps, it wouldn't be inaccurate to view our arc of military development as beginning with the feudal system, then reaching the stage where kings depended upon mercenaries alongside their feudal soldiers and those new contracts which had been arranged. In the view of Michael Roberts, not only was the military revolution, thus the ultimate death knell in the coffin of the feudal system, it was also the beginning. The beginning of those mercenaries and men on military contracts gradually merging into the kinds of armed forces which could commonly be seen by the mid-17th century or so. According to Roberts's military revolution idea, indeed, before such innovations took place, the 16th century, before 1560 at least, was full of stagnant, obsolete ideas and ineffectual commanders. This is an idea we'll address later on, but for now it's important to make an important point about how these innovations were even able to take place. Such changes in how battle was joined and organised can be chalked down to how one substance was weaponized gunpowder. Without this substance and the weaponization of it, the military revolution, as Michael Roberts imagines, would not have been possible. The musket, once a dangerous and unwieldy weapon, became the most important element of the armed forces and granted killing power on a new scale to all men in the army, from the average peasant to the richest lord. If you had a musket and you knew how to use it, then technically speaking, you were no more useful to a commander than if you owned acres of land or if you owned just one smelly hut on the mountain. The adoption of the musket and its transformative power on the battlefield and society was thus complete because it made everyone equal on the battlefield. But we need to look back to the issue of training to fully grasp the totality of this change. Since the drill required months upon months of training to inculcate the necessary behaviours and principles into these unthinking, unflinching killing machines that soldiers in the drill would later be associated with, it was no longer possible for them to go home, and it was certainly not possible for these men to uproot themselves and still provide for their families at the same time. Thus, the importance of the drill, adopted thanks to the supremacy of the musket, led to these armies 
not going home and becoming a paid permanent force instead. The standing army, of course I'm simplifying the process immensely here, but in such a way the standing army was born. And of course, these changes came to European states at different points between the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries, and we'll be investigating in later episodes of this mini-series how these changes were felt across Europe and what implications they had on the ground for that government and that ruler. For now though, it's helpful to speak in broader terms just to get our points across. Now that we've looked at the drill and how it made such an impact in line with the adoption of muskets, and the abandonment of the feudal system, it's time to look at another important element of the military revolution, that of military strategy, which Geoffrey Parker again breaks down for us when he writes, With the new soldiers, it proved possible to attempt more ambitious strategies, to campaign with several armies simultaneously, and to seek decisive battles without fear that the inexperienced troops would run away in terror. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, The victor of the Battle of Breitenfeld and conqueror of Germany certainly put these new strategic concepts into effect. According to Michael Roberts, he was the first. As we'll see later on in the episode, and indeed in this series full stop, it's a bit unfair to credit the likes of Gustavus Adolphus with inventing the search for decisive battles and relying on the experience of his troops as he did so. Yet it should be said that from at least the late 16th century, commanders were more flexible because they were able to rely on the prowess of their soldiery to move and act as a unit to depend on one another, and above all to remember their training. The drill would see many men through the most terrible and trying campaigns, largely by making them focus only on what they had been taught to regurgitate when the times got tough. Without that level of training, The kinds of horrific wounds which only mass musket volleys could inflict would never have been survivable. The men would surely have fled at the first sight of his friends all dying in a row beside him, especially if he was only there because he had to be, and not because he was being paid. With the drill making these soldiers capable of bearing these awful sights and wounds by following the commands barked at them and taking themselves out of the horror of it all, as best as they could of course, the military revolution brought about another change which we'll see more on later. The idea of forbearance, or in other words, being able to withstand the relentless pressures of the mass volleys and to hold out under these strains until the enemy breaks, or you do. Forbearance is the technical term for the morale of the men, and it could be taught through the drill as much as it could be inspired by a daring, personable commander whom the men would willingly fight for, especially if he had led them to victory before and promised them another chance of enrichment. When we get into the meat of the Thirty Years' War, the expertise of certain commanders like Count Tilly, Gustavus Adolphus, Wallenstein, etc. definitely helped improve the morale of the men, and thus their ability to withstand the horrors of war better than their rivals. It was, as Louis XIV himself said later on in the 17th century, Good order makes us look assured and it seems enough to look brave, because most often our enemies do not wait for us to approach near enough for us to have to show if we are in fact brave. This turn of phrase was followed up by Marshal Catenat, one of Louis's most accomplished marshals, who noted that One prepares the soldier to not fire, and to realise that it is necessary to suffer the enemy's fire, 
expecting that the enemy who fires is assuredly beaten when Run receives his initial discharge. As the historians Williamson Murray and McGregor Knox put it in their book on the dynamics of the military revolution, For 17th century generals and military thinkers, battle, and infantry combat in particular, had become a test of wills. Victory went to the force that absorbed the worst that the enemy could inflict, and still maintained order, rather than the force that inflicted the greatest physical casualties on the other side. The emphasis on taking losses stoically was far from the primitive warrior ethos that commanded headlong attack. The surprising truth is that 17th century Europe developed a battle culture based less upon fury than upon forbearance. The importance of forbearance, then, was certainly a byproduct of the military revolution, and absolutely cemented itself as a vital aspect of the drill, especially during the later 17th century. The sight of men just grinning and bearing the terrible casualties and horrific wounds must have been something to behold, but without constant and consistent training under a reliable commander, such qualities of stoicism could never be inculcated in the soldiery. Thus, not just constant training in the drill, but new ways to innovate it and make it better were sought after. This explains the growth and popularity of war academies and schools dedicated to understanding and overcoming the perils and challenges of war, to raising responsible and skilled commanders tasked with leading the nation to said war, and by applying a layer of finesse to the whole bloody business. From these ideas came additional ones. What laws of war should be adopted, and could a kind of code of laws be implemented during wartime to protect the citizen? This led to new investigations in literature on warfare, new schools of thought, and new debates over the following centuries. If it follows that professional armies required the state to foot the bill for them, or for the state to pay others who would organise these soldiers and foot the bills, then it also follows that military organisation by default would have to improve. The military-industrial complex was not quite born, since creating and paying for armies was immensely expensive. Yet, the need for armies to meet your enemies forced Europe to challenge itself and to improve how these armies were organised, which then led to innovation and a streamlining of the state's bureaucracy to deal with war. In episode 1 we saw the better educated knights increasingly turn to administration rather than warfare as a means of distinguishing themselves, and the natural result of this was that a military civil service began to develop and grow exponentially over the following centuries. Ministers of war, or defence as they are known today, would be charged with the task of coordinating all the relevant pieces of the puzzle together so that the military machine could work, and as a result of this attention, the military machines got a great deal bigger, and an arms race of military machines developed, leading to a dramatic ballooning in the size of armies over the 17th century, and all the resulting negative impact this would have on the citizenry, as Parker notes. A third component of the military revolution theory was a prodigious increase in the scale of warfare in Europe between 1560 and 1660. The new strategy, Roberts pointed out, required far more troops for its successful execution, an articulated force of five armies operating simultaneously according to a complex plan which would need to be vastly more numerous than a single army under the old order. Fourth and finally, 
this prodigious numerical increase dramatically accentuated the impact of war on society. The greater destructiveness, the greater economic costs, and the greater administrative challenge of the augmented armies made war more of a burden and more of a problem for the civilian population and their rulers than ever before. Countless offshoots of these developments, of course, followed, but as Parker observed, the original version of the military revolution theory put it that the four essential ingredients of the theory were tactics, strategy, army size, and overall impact. However, what Jeffrey Parker did next was quite extraordinary. He picked apart the idea of the military revolution from start to finish, and as a professor of Spanish history, Habsburg history, and the history of the Eighty Years' War, he also made several important conclusions. If any of the things we've run through have made you scratch your head and say, hey, wait a minute, what about this? Well, fear not. The military revolution idea put forward by Michael Roberts was far from perfect and were by no means beholden to it or reluctant to criticise it. And while it was a handy way to group the important developments of warfare into a 100-year bundle between 1560 and 1660, Geoffrey Parker didn't take long to find flaws with the theory, starting with the actual timeline of it itself. You see, contrary to what Roberts's military revolution idea may suggest, 1560 wasn't the year that change came suddenly and swiftly to the battlefield and administration. These changes did of course come, but in my opinion, and in the opinion of Geoffrey Parker, it'd be a bit simplistic to chalk these down to a kind of unexplainable wave of change between 1560 to 1660. In line with this, Parker makes an important point when he takes the starting date of 1560 apart. It was in Renaissance Italy that the kinds of revolutionary change in how armies operated had already taken place, and all of this in the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries, not merely in the 1560s. Italian states, confined to such small spaces and competing for such scant resources, engaged one another on a relatively small scale, but with big impressive innovations in the gunpowder and military administration and fortification spheres. Furthermore, when in the 1490s the French and Habsburgs clashed in North Italy on such a grand scale, these European powers were forced to emulate the tactics, strategies and organisational structures of the Italians to get by. In such a way, Parker notes, the military revolution didn't begin in 1560, but properly began once everyone in Europe caught the bug from the Italians. While it may seem strange that this was the case, the Italian city-states and micro-republics were hardly great powers after all, we need only bear in mind how influential and important the Renaissance was for European thought to be reminded that Italian influence in Europe was far from unusual. Furthermore, because Italians were able to implement these ideas on the small scale, though of course it was large and all-important to them, Europeans outside of Italy were given the chance to experiment and spread these ideas on a far larger scale across their own states. Hopefully this makes a bit of sense to you guys, but even then it doesn't tell the whole story. So the military revolution did take place, but not on the level of suddenness or in so simplistic a time frame as Michael Roberts suggests. Geoffrey Parker, as an esteemed historian of Spanish, Dutch and Thirty Years' War conflicts, knows what he's talking about, and he has penned some of the most readable and accessible accounts of the Thirty Years' War, 
which any student or enthusiast of the conflict worth their salt will surely check out. And I know for a fact from talking to some of you that you have checked these out. Parker also subscribes to the idea that the Thirty Years' War was an international conflict, since it hinged upon so many variables and the actions of so many states not directly related to the Germans or Habsburgs, just as sure as it depended upon the Franco-Habsburg rivalry, the Dutch-Spanish War, the relative inactivity of the Ottomans along their border with the Habsburgs, and the explosion of activity underway in Scandinavia. In short, Parker has studied the preceding years of the Thirty Years' War in great detail, and is in a good position to make a judgement on what warfare was like before 1560. Considering his origins as a scholar of Spanish history, it shouldn't surprise us to see Parker highlighting the Spanish example of revolutionary tactics in military organisation and efficiency. Parker makes a strong case for the supremacy of Spanish arms throughout the 16th century, and considering the prominent position which King Philip II of Spain held throughout his reign in the latter half of the 1500s, this should all make sense. Spain was nothing without its military machine, which had developed and matured thanks to its repeated interactions with Italian tactics and technology, and to frequent conflict in the Americas and Europe. Small uniform companies into regiments or turquios, to use the famed Spanish terminology, of one and a half to two thousand men and musketry was a critical part of what made these regiments so effective. The Duke of Alva, the famed Spanish commander, was something of a pioneer in this regard. He was better known as the Iron Duke in the Netherlands for his firm hand in putting the Dutch revolt down, but the Duke of Alva effectively ensured that musketmen made up a majority of the forces in these Turkio regiments, and he organised Spanish armies to such an extent that Spanish Turkios were ready for any challenge. They knew how to react to their enemies, no matter what form those enemies took, and they could meet any threat with similar calmness and tenacity. These innovations made Turkio a byword for Spanish military supremacy in the 16th and even in the 17th century for Europe, and it also enabled the Spanish military machine to remain fearsome and effective long after Spain itself had ceased to function properly. If anyone knows what's to come in the Thirty Years' War, then you'll know that in 1634, in the Battle of Nordlingen, the Swedish forces who had supposedly perfected their efforts during the military revolution as Michael Roberts imagined it, were in fact decisively defeated by these very Spanish turquios we've just been talking about. The reason for this was the longevity and innovation of the Spanish military revolution in its own right, which had begun and matured several years before anyone else's. Spanish infantry were kept constantly trained by a revolving door of recruits into the garrison towns of Naples, Brussels, Milan, etc., whereupon they'd received training in the drill by the veterans of the Spanish army who were already there. These developments all predate Michael Roberts's military revolution idea by several years, and meant that Spain wasn't undergoing this change between 1560 to 1660, since she had pretty much already instituted it. Yet, we shouldn't be content with shining this flattering spotlight only on Spain. Geoffrey Parker makes the important point that the military revolution of Michael Roberts overlooks a central fact of European history and warfare, or as Parker puts it more eloquently, The simple fact is that, wherever a situation of permanent or semi-permanent war existed, whether in the Hundred Years' War, the late Middle Ages, 
or the Thirty Years' War of the 17th century, one finds, not surprisingly, standing armies, greater professionalism among the troops, improvements in military organisation, and certain tactical innovations. Seen in this light, it's possible to see Europeans learning not from a military revolution necessarily, but from a series of lessons learned after several ruinous wars. Because warfare was such a natural part of the European state system, and because it was so constant, it was only natural that Europeans would search out better ways of carrying it out. With that in mind, when they encountered people that did war in a more effective way, such as the Italians during the Italian Wars, did it not follow that lessons would be learned here and applied to their own armies, or that good ideas would be plagiarised and perfected on a larger scale? All great wartime innovations had not come from sitting around a table and debating the finer points of this weapon or that, but from experimentation on the battlefield and creativity in the attack and defence. Much like every other profession, those that fought and led on the battlefield were standing on the shoulders of giants, or, to be more precise, military leaders learned and gained from the mistakes and successes of their predecessors, and these lessons had only been learned during conflict. Parker underlines this point when he noted that Gustavus Adolphus in the 1520s and Maurice of Nassau in the 1590s were forced to overhaul their armies dramatically because of the disastrous defeats which their predecessors had suffered in the preceding years. For inspiration, it is true, they turned in part to classical writers, but, like other rulers, they also turned to more successful military practitioners, especially to the generals of Spain. Three of the best English military writers of the reign of Elizabeth had all served in the Spanish army of Flanders for several years and held up its practices as examples to others. The war in the Low Countries was a seminary in which many of the great commanders of the German Thirty Years' War and English Civil War were formed. It is no accident that a large part of the military vocabulary of Northern Europe should have come from Spanish. Warfare, like the progress of history itself, was dynamic and constantly changing, as new strategies, innovations and theories were brought to bear, and commanders were forced to respond to these challenges. The school of hard knocks, as we established in the first episode, was this experience of constant war, bookended by conflicts which were longer, more costly and therefore more important than others. Just as the crossbow had enabled the Italian peasant to inflict horrific wounds on enemies of all size, so too did the musket now grant any European the chance to do the same. He did not need to undergo a lifetime of training, a la English longbowmen, nor did he need to own land and pay for his equipment, a la the Knights of the Middle Ages. Instead, all he needed was to present himself to the recruiter, where he could be transformed into a killing machine, and whereupon he would handle a weapon which did not distinguish between class, wealth, or experience. The strength of this recruit would be found in the damage he could do alongside his peers in the line formation, rather than due to the skills developed after years upon years of training with swordsmanship or horsemanship. The unit, rather than the individual, became paramount, and the nature of the drill meant that, so long as he was immersed within its tenets, any man could achieve the same exploits as his peer. In my view, then, it would be highly reductionist to emphasise the years 1560 to 1660 and claim that the military revolution occurred in that time period above all, and that was that. It would be more accurate, I feel, to claim that a revolution in military thinking did take place, 
but that this began in the 1490s with the onset of the Italian Wars and the European adoption of Italian tactics on a larger scale and that these tactics were all made possible by the adoption of the musket and innovations and creativity which went along with that weaponry. Each such development depended upon the experience and lessons learned during previous years and they didn't drop out of the sky in 1560. In some respects, the most striking innovations in technology and strategy during the 1560 to 1660 period were merely copies or adaptions of what other peoples, like the Italians and Spanish, had already been doing for several years. As we saw, there were also many byproducts of the military revolution, which Michael Roberts' original theory doesn't even properly emphasise. The importance of forbearance, the growth of military literature, the explosion in military education literature, the building of military hospitals and the resulting schools of expertise which flowed from these developments. In addition, Roberts does not place too much emphasis upon either the development of artillery or the most significant result of artillery's dominance and something we've been notably silent on for this entire episode, the complete redesign of European fortifications to replace the old castles of the Middle Ages with something more suited to combating cannons of ever-increasing calibre. This development was yet another innovation created by the Italians, and it thus bears the name Trace Italien, the Italian style of fortifications. Considering how critically important sieges would be for the 17th century, especially in the Low Countries where so much of warfare's lessons were learned, this exclusion by Roberts is something that requires fixing. And in the next episode, in case you were wondering... Yes, we're going to look in more detail about how these fortifications were developed and how these new fortifications impacted European warfare still further. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach and this has been the 30 Years War miniseries looking at conflict in the 17th century, episode 3. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.